Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening with step number eight. We've been working through uh, his writing on freedom from anger and the virtue of meekness. And uh, this will be, he'll be making a little segue into the remembrance of wrongs, which he sees as the kind of the, the consummation of anger. Uh, when we hold on to the wrongs that others have done uh, to us and are unable or unwilling to forgive. And um, so these are very powerful steps. And then we'll be making a movement into sins of speech following that. There will be three or four steps that all touch upon that. So some very interesting reflections uh, coming our way. So again, we're on page 122, paragraph 17, beginning with the words, sometimes singing. Sometimes singing in moderation successfully relieves temper, but sometimes if untimely and immoderate, it lends itself to the lure of pleasure. Let us then appoint definite times for this and so make good use of it. And so it, you remember the last time we were talking a little bit about how when things can become sort of chaotic in one's life, uh, John says to you know av avoid the extremes that with people who get angry sometimes push away their food and, uh, and it only intensifies the anger or others will fall into a kind of gluttony uh, seek to self-console through food uh, and John says there's a kind of moderate way of responding to our mental state at that point uh, where we can relax our discipline a little bit to allow ourselves to catch our breath and uh, so sometimes taking a little bit to eat or having something to drink uh, can sort of lighten the, the, the load a little bit, lighten our minds. And uh, I think similarly with this paragraph, that uh, singing uh, can lighten the heart and the mind. And so in moderation, especially at a time where we are feeling angry and our emotions are very intense, uh, that uh, singing uh, involves you know, a great part of ourselves and uh, emotionally can help alter things for us so that we aren't uh, brought down uh, into a kind of desolation or deep, deep anger or rage or spitefulness uh, by anger. Again, it can just sort of lighten the mood for us. And John again says to do this in moderation uh, so that we aren't pulled too far in one direction or another. Uh, but nonetheless, it can be helpful. Number 18. When, for some reason, I was sitting outside a monastery near the cells of those living in stillness, I heard them fighting by themselves in their cells like caged partridges from bitterness and anger and leaping at the face of their offender as if he were actually present. And I devoutly advised them not to stay in solitude, lest also observe that people, I'm sorry, lest they should be changed from human beings into demons. And I've also observed that people whose hearts are sensual and gluttonous are apparently meek, and as it were, fawners, affectionate towards their brethren and lovers of beautiful faces. And I advise these to go and adopt the life of stillness, using this as a scalpel that cuts out licentiousness and gluttony, lest they should miserably fall away from a rational to a, an irrational nature. 
But when some of them told me that they were the wretched victims of these two passions, that is anger and sensuality, I absolutely forbade them to live according to their own will. But in a friendly way, I suggested to their superiors that they should allow them sometimes to live in one way and sometimes in another way of life, but that they should be entirely subject to the superior. The sensual person is liable to harm himself and perhaps one other intimate friend uh, of his as well. But the angry person, like a wolf, disturbs the whole flock and wounds many humble souls. So again, it's a curious thing. You know, we find uh, in John a kind of uh, physician who uh, is able to diagnose what is going on, but also to apply these remedies uh, that avoid the extremes and sort of help a person navigate. So he's uh, able then to see even, you know, those who uh, find themselves subject to, to both passions in a very deep way that uh, they have to kind of alternate the life where somebody who's dominated by angers, certainly they would want to, to uh, be guided by a superior. And similarly with gluttony, maybe uh, a life where uh, they're more disciplined, but with those who are, are subject to both, that uh, a finer instrument is needed, in particular, uh, a superior who's able to watch over what's going on in their minds and their hearts, to listen to their thoughts and to see their actions, uh, but also be able to alternate the life for them. So sometimes to allow them to be immersed in greater solitude and other times to have them be engaged more in the common life. And um, so John, you know, again, as so many of the, the fathers uh, had this kind of astute psychological sense uh, of individuals and what their particular needs would be as well as spiritual. And, uh, and refined it over the course of time, uh, not trying to you know, fit everyone into one practice, but realizing that one would have to make adjustments for certain personalities and temperaments and be able to offer the, the best kind of medicine, as it were. And so you know, these are the best kinds of spiritual directors that one would, would, one would want. Number 19, well, maybe before we jump to 19, 18, the last uh, sentence there, an angry person like a wolf often disturbs the whole flock and wounds many humble souls, that it really requires a superior who's strong, not willful or one would say brutal to you know, those under his care, but one who's able to contain that anger and uh, redirect it and watch over the whole flock. Because someone who, whose temperament is dominated by anger, uh, if mixing within a community, he can bring it down very quickly. He can agitate the community and members against each other. And so it takes uh, a superior who has this capacity uh, to see what's going on in some of the subtle forms of anger or passive aggression to, uh, that uh, he would have to address with a particular individual so that it doesn't disturb the whole. And uh, this is you know, a very common problem uh, as well as destructive. 
Number 19. It is bad to disturb the eye of the heart by anger, according to him who said, through wrath is mine eye become troubled. But it is still worse to show in words the turmoil of the soul and come to blows it is utterly inimical and alien to the monastic, angelic, and divine life. Uh, sort of curious that he has to mention this here. Uh, I imagine uh, if you're living in a group of men who are willful, uh, that eventually uh, they would break out into fistfights uh, if things got bad enough. And so for John to say, you know, this is completely contrary to the life, that you are to be imitating the angels, you are to have, be gentle and to have ordered your passions in such a way that there is this freedom from anger. And so if you aren't got watching it, and if you aren't seeking to apply the healing balms of the superior, uh, you can't think that it's, it's not going to manifest itself or that you would be above even uh, engaging in physical altercations with, with your brothers. And believe me, I've heard a lot over the course of the years, and uh, this probably isn't as uncommon as one might imagine, sadly. Okay. <clears throat> and then this is even before they had internet and Facebook, so. <clears throat> Number 20. If you want, or rather intend, to take a splinter out of another person, then do not hack at it with a stick instead of a lancet, for you will only drive it in deeper. And this is a stick, rude speech and rough gestures. And this is a lancet, tempered instruction and patient reprimand. Reprove, says the apostle, rebuke, exhort, but... He did not say beat, and if even this is required, do it rarely and not with your own hand. And so it's an interesting use of the, the passage, you know, remove the, the log from your own eye and uh, without being focused upon the splinter in the other. And, to, you know, to try to remove the splinter with uh, a, a stick is only going to drive in the problem that we seem we see to be difficult in the other. And the, the two things, rude speech and rough gestures. Uh, it's interesting, as we go through anger and as we move into the sense of speech, sometimes these are the things that we see as less problematic or that we, can we seem to be able to justify uh, with others, you know, especially when they irritate us or do things that are problematic. The rough, you know, this difficult speech, speech, mean speech or rough gestures uh, to let them know how we're feeling uh, is something that's pretty common. And, and so, you know, John is saying, you know, we can't allow ourselves the luxury of doing anything but loving and seeking to love the other. And so, even if you are feeling anger within the heart, make sure that you don't allow it to go to the next step, which is to verbalize it. Uh, at least try to control your tongue and your demeanor. You, your heart might be raging within you in regards to anger at another, but restrain yourself in regards to speech and the look on your face that uh, we don't want to provoke anger in another, 
and then draw us both uh, into a pit. Number 21, if we are observant, we shall see that many irritable people are practicing vigils, fast, and stillness. For the aim of the demons is to suggest to them, under the pretext of repentance and mourning, just what is likely to increase their passion. And so irritable, irritable people, angry, angry people can often retreat and retreat through the use of asceticism and ascetical practices. And so to withdraw, to practice vigils, you know, uh, and fast and, and stillness, to uh, apply greater discipline to themselves. Uh, but in doing so, they will often weaken themselves and make themselves more irritable. That if one, say, uh, practices vigils to excess, and so is going on limited sleep, it's obvious what's going to happen, that the next day they're going to be even more irritable. And the same thing with fasting, to extend it beyond uh, what would be commonly done, uh, you know, say a regular fast, probably at this time, that certainly they would wake the next day weakened and likely, again, be more irritable towards others. And so under the guise of seeking to gain hold of, of this passion, the demons uh, can put forward a suggestion uh, before the minds and the hearts of the monks, enter into this discipline, you know, impose that which is greater upon yourself in order to, uh, to also then gain control of, of the feelings. But in the process, uh, they, they set them up for a greater fall. And again, this is why having a superior, as you can see John saying earlier, uh, is so important. Someone that can offer wise counsel and a healing balm that is really going to be something that is truly, truly healing and can pick up the sort of the trickery of the demons uh, and prevent them from falling into that pit of, of greater aggression, greater anger and directing it towards others. Any comments so far on some of the sayings or teachings of John on anger? Okay. Yes, Kevin. Sorry, it took me a sec to find that. Um, had a specific question on, sorry, on uh, 20. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just, I'm having a little trouble understanding the, Okay, sure. When he says, and if even this is required, do it rarely. Mm -hmm. Is he talking about using the lancet or the stick? Uh, using the stick, that there would be a kind of punishment that would be inflicted. Uh, what that was, I'm not sure. A kind of corporal punishment or uh, that would be meted out. Uh, to certain individuals, if they were intractable, I guess, in in their disobedience and weren't able to receive the counsel of the superior or others. And so they might be given greater penances of some sort, uh, something treated with a greater harshness to see if they would respond and humble themselves before the superior. And uh, 
you know, there, you know, I think once when a person works themselves up into an angry state, uh, they can dig in their heels, uh, even in the face of the superior's directions. And uh, I don't think this would be done today because probably somebody would call the cops and say they fear for their health and goodwill and the, the superior would end up in jail for, for abuse. Uh, but uh, I, I think at that point, you know, certainly they would see uh, something like this, uh, sort of like the counsel from the scripture, spare the rod, spoil the child kind of thing, that, uh, that there was a realization that at times a superior would have to be harsh and, you know, I think when we th look at this, we wouldn't necessarily think of beating or of hitting someone, but a superior might have to, uh, you know, offer penances. Uh, and in the community I was in, uh, within, often within the roles uh, that it is laid down, that if somebody is repeatedly obedient and does not accept the correction of the superior or the the congregation or the community as a whole then they can be removed from their ministry or from the ability to sub you know publicly celebrate the, the sacraments uh you know that they could go without pay or vacation things such as that so sometimes you know rather than certainly throwing an individual out of a community certain uh, punishments would be given if a person was locked into this attitude uh, to see if they would humble themselves. And, you know, here John is even a little bit hesitant to this, you know, in saying reprove, the apostle isn't saying beat. And, but, you know, if you come to a point where you have to be heavy handed you know, even a superior, have somebody else do it, somebody who's responsible uh, for, and may, maybe even a step removed. Uh, in the community that I was in, uh, the oratory, we, there was an office that was only to be filled by somebody who had long experience and obedience in the community. It was the office of corrector. And it typically wasn't the superior. It was somebody who was very delicate in their uh, ability to engage others, but could correct them if they were not abiding by the particular statutes or the rule. And, and so, you know, John is saying here, and even if this is required, not do not with your own hand. I think allowing another who is emotionally removed from this, you know, a superior who's being uh, treated with disobedience, uh, and uh, aggression by one of his monks. Uh, it would be better if there was another who had this particular task, but had a particular skill in uh, applying the appropriate remedy that was needed for what the person is struggling with. And, um, and so in, I, I think this is needed in our day. I think, you know, clear boundaries are something that are important from childhood. And we see what happens when there are no boundaries set. Uh, I think this is worthy of a digression that uh, 
children who do not have boundaries and clear boundaries actually experience a kind of insecurity about the love of their parents. The capacity of a parent to set boundaries when they, they are pressing up against them. You know, they're sort of uh, seeking to develop their own identity, uh, but also to test reality, what is reality itself, what is right and wrong. Uh, but where there are no boundaries whatsoever, it's going to leave a child with a terrible sense of insecurity. And sometimes the acting out is the result of having no boundaries whatsoever. And so within a religious community, you know, even though there are adults, uh, if, you know, people play fast and loose with the role or are not abiding by the role at all, and that there isn't a superior that is willing to guide and direct his men into a kind of mature embrace of the spiritual life, as well as the charism of the community, the common life is going to break down very quickly. And, you know, I think the Desert Fathers and certainly John Climacus as one who was abbot of a community understood that very well, that guidelines, fraternal correction, boundaries, uh, in living that life and uh, in living the life and punishment for the boundaries when they are uh, when for, for when boundaries are broken that this is a responsibility and love that the abbot would have as father of the community and with your when you're a father to 30 40 50 <laughs> men that can be a pretty difficult task it could devolve into what we read in an earlier paragraph, you know, that before you know it, you have monks, you know, fighting in the in the hallways. Good question, though. I think, you know, he is making it uh, he, that I missed there a little distinction. You know, if it is required, do it rarely. You know, the harsher punishments would be a last resort. And, you know, Paul, in his writings, you know, when he talks about fraternal correction, at one point he says, then hand them over to the evil one. Allow them to experience the consequence of their sin. And so they're break, breaking away uh, from communion uh, with, with the church uh, as a last hope that this would bring them to their senses. You remember how Paul talks about it first, you talk to them privately, then you bring another one, then you bring them before the whole church uh, to try to bring them back along the right path. And then finally, you might be brought to a point where the more severe kind of response is needed to protect the rest of the community. Because we hear in the upper paragraph on page 123, that if a person is angry, roaming around the community, that he's going to be like a wolf among sheep and agitate the whole group. And so if they can't live the common life and they can't receive reprimand or correction, then they may have to be uh, uh, asked to leave the community. Number 21. No, it's, I'm sorry, number 22. If, as we said above, a single wolf with the help of a demon can trouble a flock, then certainly one most wise brother with the help of an angel can make 
the waves abate and the ship sail calmly by pouring, as it were, a good skin full of oil on the waters. And the condemnation of the former is indeed heavy and equally great is the reward that the latter will receive from God and he will become an edifying example for all. So just as someone who is angry can upset the whole community, likewise, if you have somebody who has a temperament that is calm, who lives in the peace of Christ, that he can bring a kind of stability to the community. And this is why elders are always important for a community. And where a community is young and lacks elders, it often will not survive because uh, when you have elders, they've gone through everything, they've experienced most everything in common life, they can be a calming voice, uh, a voice of wisdom for the community as a whole. And instead of uh, ramping things up emotionally, they can, through a simple word or counsel, bring peace back to a community. And so that then you know, they become praised in the eyes of God as a peacemaker and are rewarded by God as much as one who would be punished for disturbing the peace of a, of a community. And this sort of goes back to what I was talking about, the corrector of the community. He has to be a peacemaker. You know, someone who has this capacity to engage others in, in such a way that he does not increase anger or irritability, but bring, brings a kind of calm upon the community as a whole. If you remember, Isaac the Syrian said, you know, if you can't be a peacemaker, at least don't be a troublemaker. So, and if we could follow that guidance, I think we'd be in pretty good shape. Just don't cause any trouble. You know? <laughs> If you can't be this calming voice, then just don't stir up trouble with the rest. The beginning of blessed patience is to accept dishonor with sorrow and bitterness of soul. The middle stage is to be free from pain in the midst of these things. But perfection, if it is possible, is to regard dishonor as praise. Let the first rejoice, let the second be strong, Blessed is the third, for he exalts in the Lord. So, you know, the, when we enter into this battle, we might taste the bitterness of it. And it might be very painful for us to hold our tongue and to bear with things patiently. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, as we hear, let the first rejoice that the grace is given at least to be able to do that not to be a troublemaker, as it were, to keep one's mouth shut. The middle stage is, uh, you know, there's the pain, they're free from pain in the midst of this, but they need endurance. So not so much moved anymore within the heart uh, and not uh, desiring to strike back, but nonetheless, they need endurance that carries them all the way to the end. And then certainly the third, the rarest of sorts, exalts in the Lord uh, that, uh, you know, that they are filled with the peace of Christ themselves. That they've been conformed uh, by the grace of God uh, to be an image of Christ within the world. And in this, in this sense, they magnify the Lord through their, their capacity to bear these things and to bear them well.
I've noticed what a sorry sight angry people present by their self-esteem, though they themselves were unaware of it. For they get into a state of anger, and then they become still more angry at their defeat. And I was astonished to see how one fall was punished by another, and I pitied them as I saw them avenging sin by sin. I was horrified at the demon's trickery and nearly despaired of my own life. And so self-esteem, you know, being unconscious of that reality, you know, the way that we hold on to our dignity and uh, finding ourselves then being driven uh, into deeper and deeper, deeper and deeper anger. And then when punished uh, because of it, fall into deeper anger still. And so they become pitiable figures in John's eyes. What hope is there for us, he has at this point in his mind. You know, if we can be drawn into greater and greater anger, and then when the remedy is applied because of self-esteem, we aren't able to receive it. We aren't able to repent. Then what, what, what keeps us from despairing in the face of that? If demons can lead us to that point uh, where we can't even see that it is self-esteem that is keeping us from experiencing true healing here, that we are clinging uh, to our own honor or dignity in the eyes of others. And it sort of tells us that there is a kind of subtlety to that. We might feel that we are free from it uh, uh, and that we're generally peaceable individuals, uh, but you know, often it doesn't take much uh, you know, again, a harsh gesture, an insult, or sometimes even a lack of response to something that we have done for another or done good that can move us to a kind of bitterness or anger uh, that we carry within our hearts and that we'll talk about in the next step, you know, this remembrance to of wrongs of others. So even if it can be something from rooted in the past that we carry along with us. And so for a period of time, we might find ourselves free from anger and, until something triggers it. And then the next thing you know that we're, we're letting loose on others. Daniel. Is, um, is part of the, I don't know, in, in trying to understand this paragraph, is mm -hmm. part of the key here where he says, though, that, though they themselves are unaware of it. Like, so I guess what I mean is, because he also says that he, at the end, he says, and he nearly despaired of his own life. Mm -hmm. So it sort of sounds as if he's not excluding himself from this. Mm -hmm. Right. And that he's, but that what he maybe is trying to call attention to is also self-awareness and not just, I don't know, am I right? Or yeah, that... you know, pride and vainglory are the most subtle of the passions and uh, the ways that we cling again to you know our own freedoms uh again a sense of our own dignity self-worth in the eyes of others that a person might not be conscious of how deep this runs within them, within them as it as it runs deep within all of us 
you know, that we can all reach that point where, you know, we come up to that line, we might have pushed it out a little bit further through the spiritual life, but we can reach that line where we say, no further, I've had it with you, and, uh, and lose our, our coal, and uh, become angry. And so, but John, I think, is also saying that uh, if we lack this vigilance and uh, a kind of searching of the heart uh, and that comes through humility, truthful living, that uh, we can become unaware that this exists within us. And if we're unaware of it, then repentance becomes less and less likely for us, even when somebody points it out that you're, you know, that you're being prideful here or that you're wrong, or that you are doing something wrong. And if we are so sh sure of ourselves, our judgment, our opinion, uh, we might resist receiving the truth from somebody's lips that would guide us along, back along the path. You know, either because they're, are, you know, they're younger than us in, you know, in, in, in our community, or that we've been at this for a longer period of time, or that we're well-respected, uh, whatever it might be. And, you know, John was well aware, as they all were, of just how subtle the demons can be, and how, how long they're willing to wait to have something like this emerge you know, to have this sense of our own dignity and self-worth and, you know, our own self-estimation grow over the course of time in these subtle ways where we begin to think a lot of ourselves, our abilities, our understanding, our capacity to do various things. And we might move along without any trouble for years. And then something can emerge and because we have not been aware of it, we will dig in our heels or because it's so formed our identity that to let go of it, we feel will be damaging to ourselves. And so we, we get this death grip on it uh, uh, that we aren't willing you know, to part with it. Uh, and and you know, no matter what somebody says to us, So it's it's hard, you know. Anger, you know, anger does blind us. You know, it's curious that we often will use that phrase. Love is blind. It's really anger is blind. It, it blinds us so often to the truth about another's dignity or about our own sin, whereas love is is something that deepens our perception of the truth if it's true and gen, genuine. And John is pointing out here just how deep you know, it can run within us. If anyone has noticed that he is easily overcome by conceit and sharp temper, guile and hypocrisy, and has thought of defending himself against them by drawing the two-edged sword of meekness and patience, then if he wishes to be completely freed from these vices, he should go live and live in a monastic community as in a fuller shop of salvation. And so, you know, go into a community where you are going to be washed clean 
uh, by, and as he'll mention later in the paragraph, by the good scrubbing that you get every day by having to live amongst the members of the community and be under the obedience of another. And so if you truly desire meekness and gentleness, you're not going to be the, you know, the perpetual bachelor living on your own that, you know, and determining, you know, what you're going to do when you're going to do it. Uh, there, there's always a kind of danger there. And this is why John felt that the living in the Snobium was really the most uh, safe path. And in fact, the path where one learns the ABCs of the monastic life, as well as the spiritual life, that where, where one's heart is formed. If you haven't lived in obedience and haven't had that shape you, then to move into uh, the anchoritic life is to place oneself in great danger. Who's going to help you when you fall into anger? You know, you can become enraged at yourself and just become an angry person through and through at that point. There, there's no healing for one. And so he goes on, he should especially choose the most austere which is an interesting thing that in spiritual direction, as well as choosing religious communities, that you don't necessarily choose the spiritual director of the community that uh, fits with your sensibilities or where you think, oh, you know, this is just right up my alley. Uh, because if it's right up your alley, then if it's too, too neat of a fit and everybody, you know, sees things the same way, then what is it that's going to shape and form you? And so here he's saying, you, you want, if you're struggling with anger in particular, that you want to enter into an austere community where that's going to be put to the test and it's, it's in a sense going to be beaten out of you, not literally, uh, then he will be spiritually stretched and beaten by the insults and dishonors of his tempestuous brethren, and perhaps even sometimes physically thrashed. Well, I guess I was wrong trampled on and kicked, and so he may wash out the filth, which is still in the sentient part of his soul. You should believe the popular saying that reproof is the wash tub for the passions of the soul. For when people in the world overwhelm someone to his face with indignities, and then boast of this before others, they say, I gave him a scrubbing, and this is perfectly true. You don't hear that phrase too often anymore. I think we should bring it back. I gave him a good scrubbing. Uh, and, you know, John is saying, you know, this is exactly what takes place within the common life, that inevitably you're going to come up against, you know, others who are in a bad mood. You're going to be insulted. What you do or the things that you do for the community is going to be, you're going to be told has little worth or that you're worthless, or that you're ignorant, or whatever it might be. And uh, through this, gradually, it is like a fuller's workshop. You know, you're being scrubbed clean of the, the anger and the irritability that, that clings to us. He goes on to say, freedom from anger in novices as a result of mourning is one thing. The imperturbability that is found in the perfect is another. In the former, anger is held in by tears as by a bridle. 
but in the latter, it has been mortified by dispassion as a snake is killed by a sword. So someone young within the community or the spiritual life, you know, is going through their meditation and the acknowledgement of their own poverty and they're weeping over their own sins, be cleansed of that anger. And, you know, John sees that there's a kind of value to that. It's funny that he would say, call them novices, because I think, you know, most of us here, you know, this experience of weeping and shedding tears as being a common part of the spiritual life might be new to us, you know, that, that one would experience a hatred and sorrow for sin on such a visceral level. Uh, but John is saying, you know, that it's one thing to, to have that. It's another to be uh, completely free from it, from having mortified the passions altogether. And in doing this, it's as if you've cut off the head of the serpent altogether. And so you cease to be afflicted by the passions. That one's desire uh, is so directed toward God and, and so directed towards uh, the, the love and desire for virtue and the kingdom that the attachment to self and the things of this world become diminished. So when we read the word dispassion here, uh, again, we don't want to fall into the error of viewing the desert fathers as stoics uh, or lacking emotion or that this was the goal of the spiritual life. It was the, to order the passions and the, order the desires towards their true end, toward God. And it's in this ordering through the transformation and transfiguration that comes through grace uh, that uh, allows our, our, us to direct our energies toward God and towards the things of God, including aggression. And so we've talked about this before, the insensitive faculty or the insensitive power of the soul uh, being that anger being directed not at others, but towards sin or towards temptation, the things that would lead us into sin. That if we were to be without that, we would be uh, in deep trouble in the spiritual life because we wouldn't be able to enter into the spiritual battle and fight it fiercely. I once saw three monks receive the same injury at the same time. One felt the sting of this and was troubled, but kept silent. The second rejoiced at his injury for the reward it would bring him, but was sorry for the wrongdoer. And the third, thinking of the harm his erring neighbor was suffering, wept fervently. And fear, reward, and love were to be seen at work. So John was able to see in these different monks the manifestation of this freedom from anger at different stages and what it looks like and what it's guided by, fear, reward, and then love ultimately that weeps tears not for one's own sin, but also weeps tears bitterly for one's neighbor's sin. Think of the depth of the love of that that one not only restrains one's tongue, 
and restrains one's anger, but is so free from anger that the love of one's brother is so great that you weep tears for him and embrace greater repentance on his behalf, understanding this kind of radical, again, this radical solidarity that we have with each other. This is where a person, you know, we often lose sight of that solidarity. Uh, certainly when we treat others with indignity or lack of charity, but when that charity is perfected and we see that the bond of communion, the bond of love there uh, runs so deep, then, you know, we don't see any distinction between our spiritual life and that of others. That we don't engage in the spiritual life in isolation but always understanding that it's meant to, to deepen the bond of love, but also to lift up the church as a whole. And so uh, I was one of the saints I was reading the other day, I can't remember who it was at this point. He said, you know, when we see, uh, you know, a breakdown within the life of the church or when we see evil within the world, we need look no further than our own infidelity to our call as Christian men and women. We are to be a light to the world and salt to the earth. And so when we see corruption emerge, you know, part of that is due to our infidelity to be salt. And when we see darkness overshadowing the world, then part of it is that we are hiding that light as it were under a bushel basket that we are not allowing the light of Christ uh, uh, you know, to be seen with, within us. As bodily fever is one thing, but the causes of this are not one but many, so also the boiling up of anger and the movement of our other passions have many and various causes. That is why it is impossible to prescribe one identical rule for them. Instead, I would rather suggest that each of those who are sick should most carefully seek out his own particular cure. The first step in the cure should be a diagnosis of the cause of each disease. For when this is discovered, the patients will get the right cure from God's care and from their spiritual physicians. And so for instance, those who wish to join us in the Lord should enter the spiritual tribunal that lies before us, and they should test themselves somewhat concerning the above-mentioned passions or their causes. I love this paragraph, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that you know, it's, they, didn't, they didn't lose sight of the mystery of the human person, even as they gained this understanding of who we are and how we function psychologically and spiritually and the affliction that we bear, that they, main, they were able to maintain the sense of individuality and that when we suffer from a particular passion, it can have multiple causes. And so one not only has to diagnose the illness, but has to have a skilled spiritual physician as well as the grace of God to be able to apply the necessary remedy. And again, this is what makes reading. Father is frozen for me. Is he frozen for anyone else? 
Yes. Yep. Yes. Yes. There he is. Welcome back, Father. You're on mute, Father. Sorry, folks. All this, everybody disappeared. And uh, so where were we? Uh, Ren's going to have a job editing this one. I don't, we're going to have two, two separate recordings. So we'll, we'll, hopefully it comes out. Uh, but uh, let's see, where was I here? So, oh, the, the fathers as spiritual physicians, the, the ability to diagnose with a kind of clarity and to apply the appropriate medicine, that they didn't lose sight again of the uniqueness of the human person. And, you know, when I started studying psychology, I think it was, again, part of the reason that I went to depth psychology or psychoanalysis is that even though Freud was uh, uh, an atheist, I, what struck me is that he held on to this view of the mystery of the human person, that no two human beings are alike. And so there's not some book that you can go to to interpret dreams or there are certain common things that we struggle with, but each person has you know, their own mind, their own reason, the unconscious, their own unique experience of life, memories, and that you have to engage each person as they are. And, and similarly, in the spiritual life, uh, you know, a spiritual director has to be conscious that he's not uh, seeking to make other people like him. He's holding forward the wisdom of the, the church's spiritual tradition, but each person has gone through certain struggles that has made them vulnerable to particular passions that need to be addressed. Uh, and so uh, a good spiritual director has to be aware of those strengths and weaknesses, as well as that personal history. And I think John is already picking up on this, you know, this whole idea of diagnosing things clearly and applying the appropriate remedies that there's not one, you know, cure-all for every, every illness. Number 29. So let the tyrant anger be bound with the chains of meekness and be beaten with patience and dragged out by holy love. And being arraigned before this court of reason, let it be duly examined. Tell us, base idiot, what is the name of the father who begot you and the mother who brought you for who brought you for evil into the world and the names of your foul sons and daughters? And not only that, but tell us the designations of those who wage war against you and kill you. And anger might be thought to reply, many are my origins and I have more than one father and my mothers are vainglory, love of money greed, and sometimes lust. My father is called conceit. My daughters are remembrance of wrongs, enmity, self-justification, and hatred. But my opponents, who are now holding me captive, are the opposite virtues of freedom from anger and meekness. She who schemes against me is called humility. But as to who bore humility, Ask her in due time herself. For the eighth step is appointed the crown of freedom from anger. He who wears it by nature will perhaps wear no other crown, 
but he who has won it by sweat has conquered all eight together. So two beautiful and very powerful paragraphs. And we can spend weeks, I think, uh, simply on this one, the interrogation of anger itself. You know, who is your father? Who is your mother? This is a common thing that we find the fathers doing uh, as a way of uh, revealing to us the various manifestations and origins of particular passions. And John, I think, is the best at this. And you'll find that he concludes most of his steps in this fashion. Tell us who your mother and your father is. And so conceit uh, is the father. Uh, mother is vainglory, love of money, greed. You know, where we seek to hold things, hold on to things for ourselves as if we own them for ourselves. Remembrance of wrongs, enmity, ju just self-justification, hatred are one's daughters. Uh, and so you begin to see uh, how th these passions manifest themselves and almost their genealogy, if you will. And in understanding that, you can, uh, in a fuller way, engage in that spiritual battle, as well as interrogating them about who their real opponents are. And ultimately, John tells us it's humility, living in the truth, acknowledging one's own poverty, one's need for God is what frees one from anger. When we are able to see with a perfect clarity how we stand before God, not simply before our neighbor, but how we stand before the perfect love and mercy of Christ, then we gain a kind of clarity as well as freedom from, uh, from anger. Uh, the last sentence of that paragraph is interesting. As to who bore humility, ask her in due time herself. You know, where, where does this humility come from? And ultimately, uh, you know, I think the answer to that is going to be living in he who is truth. It's living in Christ. And, uh, and th this is where our humility comes from. When we are, are immersed so deeply in that relationship that it becomes the standard by which we judge every movement and action of the mind and the heart. And we've moved away from private judgment and opinion uh, in the spiritual life. And it's no light statement, I think the, the final sentence, that if you've, if you've won this by sweat, then uh, you, you've conquered all the, the first, all the passions mentioned in the first eight steps. You've con you conquered them all at once, which is a powerful thing. It's, it's saying that if, you, if you're able to do battle with this particular passion, you're going to overcome a whole host of things that plague you in the spiritual life. So it's worth striving for, striving towards and going through everything that John uh, speaks of here, including the scrubbing that takes place daily. I'm glad to help you out with that if you like. We could have daily scrubbing sessions. <laughs> I do it with my dog. Every time he comes in the door, I say, okay, give me that paw. And he picks up that paw and gives it to me and I wipe it off with a towel. So he, he's learning fast here.
give me that poll for a good scrubbing. So folks, I'm sorry for that interruption. That's the first time that we've I've had a break in the internet service here, which I guess is pretty good. Uh, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to piece it together for a good podcast. So any final questions or comments on this particular step? Anything, leave anybody uneasy that you wanna address? Daniel. Real quick in that last uh, last blurb, he says, uh, he who wears it by nature will perhaps wear no other crown. Right. What does that mean? Well, if temperamentally that uh, you're sort of easygoing and that uh, aren't bothered by too many things or sort of oblivious to things that people are saying to you in your own world, well, okay, you're not going to be troubled by this particular passion, but you might not wear any other crown in the spiritual life. Whereas if you've had the battle from day one with this particular passion, you know, you're going to be uh, tested in fire. You know, you're going to be tested in battle to no end. And so you're going to wear many crowns is what he's saying, that you're going to overcome many passions by overcoming this one, that if it has its grip on you, then, uh, you know, you're going to struggle in, in terms of living charity and charity. Okay, it's uh, 8.30, so why don't we stop there for the evening. Uh, again, sorry for the break there, and we'll pick up next week. Uh, some wonderful groups also coming up, so keep an eye out for the podcast, or if you're in town, uh, they're all open to the public, so feel free to, to come to any of the ones that you, you might be interested in. Okay. So when we close with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.